0: Please turn with me to John chapter 21, verse 1 through 19, where you can follow along on page 9 in the bulletin. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there were fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and (laughs) gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, "'Yes, Lord, you know that I love you.'" Jesus said, "'Take care of my sheep.'" The third time he said to him, "'Simon, son of John, do you love me?' Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, "'Do you love me?' he said, "'Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you.'" Jesus said, "'Feed my sheep, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go.'" Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're beginning a new series. Last week we began a new series on Lent. And so we're taking a slight break from our first series on the Gospel of John. And we're moving into this four-week period where we get to receive and rest and prepare and observe the culminative events leading to the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so um, the Lenten series, it's a, it's a powerful time for a lot of people because they get to actually take a step back from life and just meditate, prepare, think, reflect. It's actually a very spiritually powerful time for a lot of people. Last week we looked at Judas, and this week we're looking at the life of Peter, at least Peter after the resurrection. Now, this is an interesting passage um, John is writing in this narrative, and one, th- one thing that 's very clear here is that he 's not writing fiction. For instance, he uses that the number one hundred and fifty three the catch of the fish. Scholars throughout the ages, liberal and conservative, have tried to make sense out of that number, like what does that number mean? and you know you can go all the way from just be looking at it from two angles on one hand, if this were fiction then 153 was a mere symbol. It's a symbolic number. And if you read the scholarly commentaries about that number, no one can make any sense out of it. The, the conclusions are just varied across the board. So, uh, you know, you can pretty much conclude that the 153 is probably just a number. There's no symbolism. On the other hand, people say, well, if it's fiction, it's probably like when you read novels today, Um, The 153 is probably some sort of number that they just included to make the story seem more real. But if you think about it, the literary genre where you put those kind of details inside fiction, it's only been around for a couple hundred years. This is thousands of years old. John wants to make it clear. In fact, in those days, if if you wanted to write fiction, you would never write it this way. It would be boring. Nobody would read it. You'd be a failure of of an author. So John is not writing fiction. He's writing history. He's writing news. This is an eyewitness account. John is recollecting, he's writing out of his memory. And what's he writing about? Now, last week we talked about Judas. And if you think about the life of Judas and what happened with Peter in this passage, there are a lot of similarities. And it kind of brings you into like, well, why why is it that Peter gets reinstated here? What is it in Peter's repentance? that actually separates him or distinguishes himself from what happened with Judas. For instance, both of them were remorseful. Peter wept bitterly. And it said in the text last week that Judas was remorseful. Both of them were confessing. In fact, Judas was explicitly confessing. Judas said, you know, I made, I made a mistake. Judas actually came back around and actually returned the money that he, that he received from betraying Jesus. If anything, Peter denied Jesus three times if you look back in John 18. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Why is it that Peter here and this, what is it about what happened in the encounter with Jesus here that separates Peter's experience of the gospel from Judas's experience? Because it makes all the difference. And that's the key. It's the key to renewal. It's the key to restoration. There are three things in this passage that we're going to learn. One, the gospel as invitation. Two, the gospel as restoration. And three, the gospel as mission or a call to mission, purpose. Invitation, restoration, mission. First, we're going to go into invitation. If you look at the first 14 verses, I'm just going to kind of recap what happened. Jesus had risen from the dead, he had already appeared to all the disciples, and they were overjoyed, it said, in the earlier chapter. And so now the disciples are going out to fish. You know, Peter wants to go out to fish and there are six other disciples that pretty much followed him along and they went out and they fished all night and they didn't catch anything. They tried all night to fish. These guys were skilled fishermen, at least many of them were, and they caught nothing. And sure enough, Jesus appears before the shore, by the shore, and he tells them, you know, cast your net on the right side of the lake. They do so, and what happens? A huge load. 153 fish, according to John. That was his recollection. And it said that it was so many, but the net didn't break. And John remembers. John remembers. This happened before. Luke chapter five. When they first met Jesus. John remembers and he pieces all the, the entire story together. And what does he get at the end? He says, it is the Lord. And Peter, who was also there in Luke chapter five, when they first met Jesus, recognizing who it is. He already had his shirt off. He takes out his aura garment, wraps it around his waist, jumps in the water and advances towards Jesus. And the other people now, they're bringing the boat with the haul of fish in. And they finally all get to shore. They come, and when they get to the shore, Jesus has a fire pit, coals, and, and, and a nice fire built, and he says, bring some of the fish you've caught, and he feeds them. And then the restoration of Peter begins. One of the things that you see here is that there were seven disciples. Seven disciples here, but let's take a look at some of these disciples, and you get to see the invitation of Christ. Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a credulous believer. What I mean by that is in John 1, when he first met Jesus, what happened? Jesus said, you know, I saw you underneath a fig tree. And just because of that, Nathaniel believes. He says, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And even Jesus is kind of surprised. He says, you believe because I told you I saw you underneath the fig tree. You will see even greater things than this. Thomas, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. Thomas is like a lot of us in this room. For me, I'm one of those, I'm a very difficult believer. I have to see things to believe things. Thomas says, unless I see, you know, when they told him that Jesus came back to life, he said, unless I see the nail marks, unless I see the nail marks and the piercings, unless I put my hand where where the piercings were, I will not believe. And sure enough, Jesus appears before Thomas, and what does Thomas do? He doesn't even have to touch. He sees and he believes. He says, my Lord and my God. So you have, you know, usually Nathaniels and Thomases, they don't get along. Nathaniels are known as easy believers, gullible almost, Thomas, the skeptic, and they annoy each other. They generally tend to not get along. Look at John. John's a rationalist. John, the disciple, is a rationalist. He's the one piecing everything together. He wrote the book of John. And the book of John is written very differently than the other books of the Bible because he's a rationalist. He's piecing everything together and he's arranging it so that we would see exactly what he wants us to see about Christ. But Peter is the exact opposite. Peter's not a rationalist. Peter is the ego. Peter's the one driven by impulse. Peter's the one that's reactionary. So he instantly responds to things and later on he feels bad and he feels dumb. He wishes he never said those things. Oftentimes he's rebuked. That's Peter. So you have this rationalist and this impulsive person, a reactionary person. They don't tend to get along. Peter's and John's usually hate each other. Nathanael's and Thomas's usually hate each other. You have two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, sitting on the boat together. Brothers don't tend to get along very well. All sitting in a boat, brought together because of Christ. On one hand, the gospel... You know, the Christian faith is the most exclusive faith in, in world history. Why? Because Jesus is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. But if you really think about it, it's the most inclusive faith in history. Coming into Christ, when you come into Christ, there is this richness. There is this community that starts to develop. Why? Because the very essence of coming into Christ is what? You're coming into not just faith in Christ, not just a relationship that's vertical, but Jesus brings you into a horizontal relationship with one another. He came for the mission of his church. He came for God's kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he said. So when you come into faith in Christ, on one hand, it's a very individual thing. It's a personal salvation, but the salvation that you're brought into is one in community, the church faith in christ is almost synonymous then with faith in the church not the faith in the individual people in the church per se because we're sinners we're fallen it's a broken world but the church what god has established here to bring forward his mission when jesus brought the disciples together what did he say matthew chapter six they want him to teach him how to they want him to teach them how to pray and what does he say here's how you pray when you pray this is what you're going to say he says our father who art in heaven not my Father who art in heaven, he says, "Our Father who art in heaven," meaning that when you're brought into Christ, if you have an individual relationship with Christ, there is this union that cannot be broken. You know why? Because that's based on person- personality. It's not based on your preferences. It's not based on, you know, they always say "like, dissolves, like. It's not based on that. Union with Christ is your union with Christ is built on your foundation of your trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. And when you have a community of people coming together believing that, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your educational background, your pedigree, the gospel transcends every one of these things. And that's why, on, on another hand, you, you look at it on one hand, it's very exclusive as a faith because Jesus is the only way. But on the other hand, it's very inclusive. Why? Because anybody, everybody is invited into the gospel. Everybody can be invited. Everybody can be drawn in. You can be from the red state or a blue state. You can be a liberal or conservative. Jesus calls. And when Jesus calls, you're brought in to a community, not just in your faith relationship with him, but in community. And it's dynamic and it's rich. Think about it. All these different people, if you look around even in this room, all these different people coming together, the richness, the enrichment that we gain from being very different, And how God uses that to extend his kingdom. That's an invitation. And that's pretty impressive. Right now, at any given point in time in the church, there are people who are starving for community. They're lonely. There are times when every one of us has experienced this. At any point in time, you can go through a period, maybe it's a spiritually dark period in your life, or just a dry period, and there's loneliness. Every one of us. You can be married and feel extremely lonely at times. You can have children and feel extremely lonely at times. You can have roommates and feel extremely lonely at times. And I'm telling you, I'm going to submit to you that in that loneliness, you're probably more like God. You're probably closer to understanding what it means to be like God than any other time. You know why? Who is God? God is community. base nature of God. The Father the Son, the Spirit. And when he said, let us make man in our image, what he's saying is that I want to bring, bring people, man himself, into this incredible union that I experience every day with the Son and the Spirit. This incredible dance of submission and love and community that we get to experience. He said, well, I'm going to create man to bring them in. So your loneliness is really a call. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to experience and savor the richness of lasting community in Christ. That's the invitation. Now, second, we have the, uh, the restoration. And the restoration, this is just an amazing, it's what makes this passage so amazing. Um, restoration and knowing who you are, who Christ is. I, I, you know, all the disciples had already seen Jesus by this point. You know, we think that this is the first time Peter saw Jesus since he rose from the dead. Actually, he already appeared to them and he said, Peace be with you. So Peter had already seen Jesus back from the dead. But he's guilty. He's already seen Jesus, but there's incredible guilt and remorse over what he's done sin. He betrayed Jesus three times. And uh, I believe that because he had already seen all the disciples, this particular passage in in Scripture was intentional. Jesus intentionally set this up for Peter. Why? Because everybody abandoned Jesus at the time of Jesus' arrest. Everybody abandoned him. But Peter was the most broken. Peter was part of the inner circle. There were three people, three of the disciples, that were part of the inner circle of Christ's disciples. And Peter was one of them. And even though everybody abandoned him, Peter's abandonment was the most grievous in some ways. And he's just broken. And in his brokenness, in his hurt, in his pain, I really believe that Jesus had brought these entire course of events, what's going to happen in the next several verses, for Peter directly. Now, what is he doing? He's going to set it up for Peter's restoration. He sets it up for Peter to be restored. And what I mean by that is, Jesus kind of sets up a sequence of events to kind of bring Peter into fellowship again, and then he restores him. And as I kind of share exactly what's going to go, what's going to happen here, what I want is for you, you know, I got to look at this passage for weeks on end, you know, for you to think about your journey, your spiritual journey, all the events of your life, maybe over the past year and a half, and think about how Christ could have set everything up for you to be here in worship today. Think about it. It's special. It's amazing. All the ups and downs, all the trials, all the suffering, all the temptations and the failures, every one of those sequences intentionally set up for you to be brought here. Here's what I mean. Peter's set up. First, the catch of fish. I mentioned before that was Luke chapter 5. This happened before. And uh, you see it here in verses 1 to 14, but what you're seeing is something a little bit different. The difference is in Peter. The first time this happened, it was when Peter met Jesus. And when when he saw that large haul of fish in Luke chapter 5, his response was very different from his response here. What does he do? He says, depart from me. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's his ego. You know, when you're standing in front of someone really, really adequate, how does it make you feel? Incredibly inadequate. If you're a good, you know, if you're an athlete, and you're a good athlete, you feel great about yourself. You're a man among boys until a better athlete shows up. How does it make you feel? There's a little bit of covetousness, envy, jealousy, but there's also a sense of inadequacy because if you, the, more, the more you put weight on that ability or skill, if somebody's better than that and they, they come you know, they're around you, it makes you feel less adequate. Think about it. If you put your faith in your looks, if you put your faith, you know, in just how you appear in front of other people, all it takes is, you know how fragile the human ego is? All it takes is for one other person to be better looking to make you feel less adequate. And, uh, Peter is on the boat and he sees something supernatural, this large haul of fish after all night, not catching anything. And in Luke chapter 5, he says, depart from me. I can't bear the sight of you being here because it makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel inadequate. It makes me feel insecure. Just go away from me. I'm being consumed. When you come face to face with God, what happens? You get consumed. And that consumption is not just a physical thing. That consumption is an internal it, it crushes you. Why? Because the weight of glory, when you come before glory, what happens? You experience that every day when you're comparing yourself with another person because you either, you either are crushing that person or you feel crushed by their adequacy and your inadequacy. And that's Peter. But this time around, that's not what happens. In his first encounter, and now what, what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing Peter to the experience. He's making him recollect the time they first met. But this time around, once Peter realizes who it, who it is, what does he do? He take, he's already naked. The immediate impulse is to cover up, you know? But what, do you, what does he do? He takes his outer garment, puts it around his waist, and he just swims towards Jesus. He's becoming rational. This impulsive, ego-driven man is becoming rational. He's processing things. He's working it out. The second part of the setup is the fire. When they get to the shore, you see this now in verse 9, Jesus already has a fire set up. And it's early in the morning. It's probably just before dawn. You know, when, when the boats come in after a big catch, it's usually still dark. And so you imagine the disciples are now getting out of the boat and they're bringing some of the fish. And for Peter, it's a surreal experience. Why? Because when's the last time that Peter saw Jesus before he died? It's in the dark, in the cold, before a fire. Jesus is now reminding Peter of the moment when he betrayed him. He's by a fire, it's cold. Three times, somebody came up to him and said, don't you know that man? I'm pretty sure you know that man. You definitely know that man. And each time he said, no, I do not know this person. No, I do not know that man. And the third time, he's so emphatic, he actually uses a curse word. He curses Jesus. He says, I do not know that guy and then he sees Jesus the rooster crows and he weeps the brokenness the despondency because he's failed him he didn't just fail him he he's just utterly just completely botched all of his promises to Jesus you know and so the first if the first sequence was the catch you know the catch of fish to to remind them of when they first met this sequence is to now show you the time when peter it's to bring peter's memory of how he betrayed Jesus And then what happens? Now they're sitting by the fire and Jesus says, bring some of the fish. And he's got bread. So he's distributing bread and there's fish. What does that remind you of? The one miracle that's listed in every gospel is what? When Jesus fed the 5,000. When he fed the 5,000. It's the one miracle that's listed in every one of the gospels. It was such an unusual, probably so amazing that every one of the gospel writers had to include it in in their narrative. And so he's showing Jesus I mean, Jesus is showing Peter who he is, the power of God, who I really am. And he sets this whole thing up for Peter, who's guilty and despondent and and really just a wreck. If you think about it, the brokenness that he must be experiencing. If you think about what sin is, what is sin? Sin is betrayal. Sin is denial. Sin is rejection. It's rejection of who Jesus is. Every moment that we live life, There is this temptation to reject who Jesus is and it makes us do all sorts of stuff. And that's Peter. He's guilty. He doesn't feel deserving. He's probably the least adequate person sitting around these people. Everybody abandoned, but he really, really abandoned Christ. And how do we know that? This is the beginning of the restoration. In verse 15, Jesus says, When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And scholars throughout history have tried to interpret, what are these? I mean, was he pointing to something? Was he pointing to the fish? Was he pointing to the bread? Was he pointing to the fire? What was he pointing to? But if you think about it, who was around? It was all the disciples. And it takes Peter back to yet another memory. Matthew chapter 26 In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus predicts his death. I'm just going to read for you what he says. This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. By the way, they are at Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's an amazing passage. And he says, and Peter replies, this is Peter, ego-driven, egotistical Peter, reactionary Peter, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now there are the fire, the aftermath, and Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you really love me more than these? Because Peter said, everybody else may fall away on account of you, but not me, I will never fall away from you. I love you more. Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you really love me more than these? Look at Peter's answer. In his brokenness. Yes, Lord, he says. You know that I love you. Jesus answered, or Jesus said, feed my lambs. The Second time. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter's hurt. Why? Because the three times that Jesus asked him represents the three times that he just utterly despised and rejected and cursed Jesus. And he knows. You know what's going on? This is what's really happening. Jesus is saying, Peter, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Peter, you failed me. Peter says, I know. The third time, Peter, you failed me. And now Peter is just broken because he knows why the three times. You know what three represents? Peter's a Jew. Three in the Bible. What does it represent? Anytime, you know, the Hebrew language doesn't have any room for superlatives. Here we have busy, busier, busiest. You are busy. He is busier. She is busiest. They didn't have that in the Hebrew language. You know what they had in the Hebrew language? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Peter, you failed me. Peter, you failed me. Peter, you failed me. The brokenness of knowing who you really are, that you are the greatest failure. You love me more than these? You are the greatest failure out of all of these. The brokenness, and each time Peter says, yeah, I know, I failed you, but I love you. I know who I am now. I was that ego-driven Ego-driven person. But I know who I am now. And I know who you are. And I love you. There's no defensiveness. There's no excuse-making. There's no blame-shifting. There's no comparing. It's just, yes. It's almost like they're just talking to each other. There's other disciples sitting around watching this. He says, yeah, that's me, guys. That's me. That's who I am. When the person that you love the most is the person that you hurt the most. When the person that you love the most is the person that you grieve the most. The person that you grieve the most is the person that you actually love the most. That's brokenness. That's experiencing brokenness. Imagine the time and every one of us has experienced it by now when you've been have been betrayed by somebody a friend someone that you really really cared for and somebody that you thought that you knew really cared for you. Can you imagine the you know you relive that brokenness, relive that pain. Jesus is saying, Peter, let's relive it. It's almost like he's sticking the knife into Peter deeper and deeper and deeper. And each time the knife is cutting deeper and deeper and it's hurting and it's hurting, it's hurting. But you know, Jesus is not vindictive. He's the skillful hands of a surgeon. So that when he pierces you with that knife, it's not to hurt you, but to heal you. It's to remove the cancer that's killing you, actually. And so each time that Peter is acknowledging who he is and who Jesus is, I love you. How does Jesus respond? He says, feed my lambs. The second time, Peter, you failed me, I know. Feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. The third time, Peter, you failed me. In other words, you are the worst of failures. You are the absolute, you are the complete definition of what a failure is. You are the superlative of failures and sinners. Will you feed my sheep? Now, you have to understand the gravity of what Jesus is asking Peter. And this is the restoration. Each time, this is not Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. This is not the bishop telling Jean Valjean, you know, do better, my child. It's not, Peter, you failed me. I know. Go. Now, you better do better. This is not Jesus telling Peter, okay, now I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you my sheep. You better do a better job because if you fail me this time, that's not Jesus here. Why did Jesus come to earth? It's love. He came for his sheep. John chapter 10. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. He says, My sheep will hear my voice, and one day there will be one shepherd over the sheep. Right now, there are many shepherds, a lot of people out there, a lot of voices speaking to these sheep, calling them away, but one day there will be only one. He says, I love my sheep. I will die for my sheep. I will lay my life down for my sheep. This is his treasure. This is Christ's treasure. Imagine that person that has betrayed you utterly, completely, fully. The, the thoughts, the murderous thoughts that you have in your brain and in your heart towards that person. It's hard enough to forgive them, but to entrust them now with your greatest treasure. Peter, you failed me. here is my treasure. Will you take care of it for me? Peter, you failed me. I know. Here's my most prized possession. Will you take care of it for me? That's trust. That's affirmation. What affirmation? What restoration? It's not just, well, I forgive you. Now you're going to have to prove to me that you're my friend. That's not Jesus. It's, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Because you failed me, I know. Okay, I know. I'm going to give you my prized possession. Will you take care of it? That's trust. That's empowerment. Can you imagine what affirmation Peter is experiencing? And that's not just for Peter. Why is it in scripture? John is trying to, Why does John want to end the entire book with this episode? It's for you. It's for you. The verse right before this passage, right before this chapter, chapter 21, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. They already have life. They already believe. This is so that you would believe. And not just believe that you may have life, real life, not just the waking up and going to bed life, real life, true life, the satisfaction of life. Plunge your failures into the grace of God. Plunge your love into the grace of God. Take your confessions and plunge it into the grace of God. It's gonna hurt, but you will emerge And Jesus will make you greater than what you ever imagined yourself could be apart from him. Lastly, that's the restoration. Lastly, you have verse 18 to 19. It's the mission. It's the mission. Jesus reinstates Peter and he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and will lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter will glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Maturity is built on surrender. Surrender. Maturity is built on a foundation of surrender. He talks about dressing yourself. He talks about your direction, where you're going, where you're headed, where you're being led. And he says, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself. You covered yourself all the time. When you were young, you said, depart from me. Because if you're, you were driven by your insecurities. You were driven by your ego. You were driven by your pride. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. Somebody else is going to dress you. Somebody else is going to lead you to where you do not want to go. And it's clear here that there's a double entendre. He's using, Jesus is using a play on words to teach multiple things with the same phrase. That's what he's doing with Peter here. On one hand, he's saying, I want you to stretch out your hands. You ever see a child get dressed by himself? It's not pretty when a child gets dressed by himself. When you, when you see a child get dressed by himself, It's bad. They just wear things that appeal to them at that moment in time. And the thing is, regardless of the temperature, regardless of who they're going to be in front of, and so inevitably the parent has to go and say, you cannot wear this. Stretch out your hand. Give me your hand. Let me take this off. Give me your hand. Let me put this back on. You ever see a child try to cross the street by himself? I hope not. I really hope not because it would be a mess. Inevitably, as a parent, you have to say, give me your hand before we cross the street. He says, Peter, you have to stretch out your hands. Somebody else is going to cover you. Stop, looking for, stop trying to cover yourself. It's ugly. It doesn't work. It's inadequate. Stop trying to cross the street on your own. You will be led to where you do not want to go. Somebody else will lead you. And clearly there was, there's this concept of, Peter, now you're maturing. Now you're starting to get it. But maturity is built on submission. Maturity is built on surrender. Maturity is built on utter submission to the one who will lead you, to the one who will dress you. What is your cover? What do you use to cover yourself daily? What do you use? Who do you follow? Whose hand is guiding you across the street? Where are you going? Maturity is built on surrender. So on one hand, it's a double entendre. Jesus says you need to stretch out your hands. Somebody else is going to dress you. Somebody else is going to lead you. And what he means by that is Peter, now that you're growing up, when you stretch out your hands, you are making yourself vulnerable in front of other people. There's no more defense. You know the boxing pose is like this. That's very closed. You're not going to invite anybody this way. You're going to turn people away. That's your ego. That's your pride. That's who you are. But Peter, when somebody else dresses you, you will stretch out your hands so somebody else will dress you. You're going to make yourself vulnerable. In my name, my followers will stretch out their hands. They'll make themselves vulnerable. They'll make themselves. There are two reasons why you stretch out your hands. One, you say, I surrender. I give up. But it's also to embrace another person and they both require a tremendous amount of security inside. Tremendous amount of security and faith and trust. A lot of confidence will enable you to embrace people that you don't know. Why is Christianity the most inclusive faith? Why? Why does it go beyond pedigree? Why does it go beyond race and ethnicity and culture and language? Why does it go beyond socioeconomic class? Why is it that rich can start to give to poor without feeling a sense of superiority? And why is it that the poor can receive from the rich without feeling inferior from them? It's because we're one body. There's an invitation. There's an invitation to the gospel. There's an invitation in community. Why? Because we've stretched out our hands and we've become vulnerable. We're all broken. We're all broken. There's not a single person in this room that is not broken in their sin. You may sit there and say, well, I'm more broken than him. That's why he can stand up and I can't. Come on. We are all broken. If you took one peek at an hour of any one of our private lives, you would see the brokenness and we would all agree. That's what drives the invitation. Why? Because there's restoration. There's affirmation in Christ. And uh, he calls us to mission. He says, you need to stretch out your hands. Now, I said it was a double entendre. There's a double meaning there. He says, you're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to make yourself vulnerable. You're going to make yourself open. You're going to break yourself to embrace other people. But clearly, that's not all he meant. He basically meant that this was going to indicate the kind of death that Peter was going to die, which means stretching out your hands is clearly a double entendre meaning you're going to go to the cross. Peter, I want you to pattern your life After the pattern of my death and my sacrifice and my surrender. Peter, I want you to live your life. Pattern it. Put it up against the way I surrendered, the way I died. That's the way I want you to live. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross. Build your life on the pattern of Christ's death. Why? Because who's Jesus? Jesus. Jesus was on the cross, and who covered him? He was naked. Jesus was on the cross, and where was he led? He was led to the grave. The one that he trusted the most, the one that he loved the most, he did not grieve him. But God chose to be grieved because sin was placed on Christ on the cross. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not just some poem he was reciting. He was saying, my God has forsaken me. He has forgotten me. He has turned his face from me. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross and when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is I've become utterly rejected. Why? So that you could be invited. I've become utterly rejected, disowned, forsaken, so that we can be brought into community. I've become utterly rejected. I've become utterly humiliated. I've become spiritually, cosmically sh- put in shame. Sin, I've become sin. Why? So that we could become restored. So we could become brought in. So we can become rebuilt. So that we can become reborn. That's restoration. That's the gospel. That's good news. If you live by any other form of teaching in Christianity, you are not living out the gospel. The gospel is not, I'm saved, now I have to work up to continue to earn God's favor. That is not the gospel. That is religion. Religion is, I have to work to get approval from God, and that will leave you broken and broken and tired and fatigued and weary. But the gospel says, you cannot earn it You cannot earn it. It There's not a single person who could ever earn it but Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate picture of maturity. Why? Because he was the most mature person. Why? Because he was able to surrender to the utmost. He was able to surrender to the utmost. He was able to submit to the utmost all the way to the grave. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, He says, make my joy complete. Why what? Being like-minded by being one, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, unity. You will have a unity that cannot be broken, that you cannot find anywhere else. If you're restored into Christ, brought into fellowship with him, clothed in grace because Jesus was clothed in wrath, led to a new life because Jesus was led to death. Naked come to thee, I trust. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. That's the end of a sense of superiority. That's the end of our ego. That's the end of our inadequacy and our insecurity. And that's the beginning of boldness, boldly coming before the grace of God. Boldly being able to be free in confession and repentance and saying, I failed, but I love you. And boldly accepting that mission of Christ to embrace others who failed, to be vulnerable and broken before others, and to live and to live, you know, pattern our lives, looking at Jesus' death and looking at his surrender and his submission. Will you do that this week? Will you reflect on that this week? Plunge your failures into the grace of God and he will grow you, mature you in ways that you would not imagine before.